Romans chapter 12, if you have your Bibles, Romans chapter 12. Thank you, Linda and the whole team for leading us. Romans chapter 12, as we continue this series on renewal. Verse 3, we're looking at one verse today. And what I want you to see from this one verse is this kind of overarching main point. And it's this, that self-exaltation will always and forever lead to humiliation. Uh, Another way Scripture says it is pride comes before the fall. Self-exaltation will always lead to humiliation. I grew up going to Andrews, Texas, if you don't know where that's at, it's, uh, if you know where Midland, Odessa is, just go about 30 minutes west of that, and you'll run into Andrews, Texas. West Texas is like western Oklahoma. There's just not a whole lot out there. Um, it's very flat and very treeless. You're in the desert, basically. But I grew up going there because both sets of my grandparents lived there. My dad grew up there and everything, and uh, my, my mom's dad still lives there, but that's the only family I got there now. But my dad's parents lived in this house out in the country, right outside Andrews. And in the front yard, they had this big front yard, and they had this driveway that that cut through the front yard, kind of like a big open sea. And so almost kind of like a little roundabout kind of thing, but you could get to the the driveway from both ends of the yard, and half that driveway was asphalt. The other half was gravel, rocks. And oftentimes we go there for Thanksgiving, and every time we did, we'd play the game, as we referred to it as. In other words, this yearly football game between the cousins and the uncles and the aunts. And we'd have this massive football game that we called the game. And we'd play on that front patch of grass in between the driveway. So the driveway would function as both end zones, is how it worked. And I'll never forget, I was probably about 10, 11 years old on this one particular year, and I was in a mode, I was in a zone to where nothing could go wrong. I was all over the field, I was catching everything, my defense was spectacular, if I must say so myself, and I was all over that field, and our team was just clicking. The makeup of my cousins and whoever else was on the team, it was just this perfect unity that I'm hoping the Cowboys can do tonight, but it was perfect unity, and we were unstoppable. And on one particular play, we were on offense, we had the ball, the ball was hiked, and I went out on this route, and I blew past my defender, who's probably a cousin of mine, and I blew past the defender, and I'll never forget looking back, and the ball was released into my direction, and it was almost like it just caught there in the air. And the sun was like reflecting off that pigskin as if it was like flying gold. And it was coming right into my hands. And right as I was stepping into the end zone, the gravel side end zone, the gravel side end zone, that ball fell perfectly into my hands. And I scored. Touchdown. And I proceeded then to do what most of us do when we have something go our way and we're victorious, I began to celebrate. A better way to describe it might be that I began to gloat. I was full of pride. 
a little bit of subconscious arrogance, and I began to run around that gravel driveway celebrating my touchdown. And what I was doing internally was exalting myself over that opposing team, even though they're blood family, exalting myself over them. And as I was doing this, I slipped. And my knee dug into the gravel. The rocks ripped open my knee. Blood began to pour out. Rocks, little pebbles, were stuck into my knee. And so there I am on the ground, weeping now, crying, my 10, 11-year-old self. And it was so bad, I couldn't move. I needed someone to come and pick me up and take me into the house and to get bandaged up. It was humiliating. I literally in one moment was on the mountaintop and then the next moment in the valley. I had self-exalted myself and then the next moment I faced humiliation. And I learned a valuable, valuable lesson at 10, 11 years old. One that you and I must learn if we're to live the kind of lives that God wants us to live, specifically within the community of the church, it's that self-exaltation will lead to humiliation. This can be true of individuals, families, churches as a whole, denominations as a whole. Self-exaltation will always and forever lead to humiliation. And Paul, in essence, in chapter 12, verse 3, is warning us. If you use your platform, if you use your position, if you use your situations, and as we'll see, if you use your spiritual gifts to exalt yourselves over, say, your spouse, your coworkers, your kids, your parents, your employees, your neighbors, your siblings, your classmates, your fellow citizens, specifically in the context of Romans 12, over your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, then you will face humiliation. On some level, in some way, all the time, every time. Pride will go before the fall. And this is what Paul writes, verse 3. He says, by the grace given me, I'm telling you, I'm saying to every one of you, not just a few of you, but every single one of you. He's writing to the believers in Rome, the church in Rome. He's telling all of them this warning. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to. I don't care your education. I don't care how long you've been in the church. I don't care your accomplishments, your knowledge, your status in the community. You better not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Instead, or rather, think of yourself with sober judgment, sensible reasoning. And then he says, in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. And that little section right there we're going to tack on next week as we look at spiritual gifts. But specifically, 
Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. There's a scene in Luke chapter 14. Jesus is at a dinner party. He got invited to this Pharisee's house. This Pharisee would have been well-educated, well-respected, not only in the religious world, the Jewish community, but also in the community at large. Very prestigious, very wealthy. And those who are at this dinner party are also in the same category. Upper, higher socioeconomic status, that kind of situation. So he's invited to this dinner. And of course, we're told that they, the Pharisees and his group of friends are watching Jesus closely. The irony is, is that Jesus is watching them closely. And what Jesus, Jesus notices, we're told in Luke 14, 7, is that the guests were picking the places of honor at the table. They were doing this either directly or indirectly. Jesus is aware of this. He's picking up on this. Their banter their kind of jokes and, and just whatever it is they're talking about and doing, whatever it is their actions are, whether it's blatant or not, he picks up on the fact that they are trying to get to the places of honor at the table. They want to be recognized. They want to be the center of attention. They were strategically trying to place themselves in positions of self-exaltation. And listen, these were men who thought very highly of themselves. Their education, their knowledge, their good works, their positions in society, in the Jewish community. They thought very highly of themselves. And they thought them to themselves most probably that they deserved the seats of honor. So Jesus, noticing this, begins to tell them a story, a parable about a wedding. And I'll give it to you in modern terms. We've all been to a wedding Right? You gather maybe in a room like this, or you gather at a wedding venue or whatever it is, you know, people are getting married at these days. And, and you gather there and you watch the bride and groom. They say their vows, they get married, they're pronounced husband and wife, and so on. And the, the music is played and they leave. And what is to follow? Well, at most weddings, what is to follow is a reception. And you gather in the reception hall or whatever it is the reception is at, you as a guest to this wedding, you gather and you wait on the bride and groom and the wedding party, because usually they're going to take pictures and everything. You're waiting for their grand entrance into the reception. And so you gather at the reception, and you sit down most likely at a table, and maybe you eat snacks, or you eat whatever the course is, or you just wait there and drink your punch and just hope that they come soon, and pictures don't take two hours, you know, that kind of moment. And so you're there at the reception, but if you're there, you'll, you, you'll know this if you've been to one. There's always a spot a table, two tables, several tables that are reserved. And so while everybody, all the guests at the reception are sitting down, there's these empty tables, and they're reserved for who? The bridal party. And usually within the center of that table, there is specifically two chairs, one for the bride, one for the groom. These are the seats of honor. This is who the wedding is all about. It's about the bride and the groom. Nobody's there for you as a guest. You're just the guest. Everybody's there for the bride and the groom and their bridal party. Those are the seats of honor. But imagine you go to a wedding and you're like a coworker or just a, a friend or something and you're there in the reception hall and you recognize these seats of honor and you begin to tell yourself, man, I want to sit in those spots. 
I want the notoriety. I want the recognition. I want to be celebrated. I want the grand entrance. And so what you then proceed to do, thinking this to yourself, is you begin to maneuver and kind of banter with some people in the crowd, but you begin to maneuver and find yourself then sitting in the place of honor. Well, what's going to happen if you do this? At some point in time, somebody's going to come and tap you on the shoulder or confront you, and they're going to say, that's not your seat. Get up and go somewhere else. That seat is reserved for those who are being recognized, honored today. And if that's you being confronted in that moment, most likely there's going to be eyes on you, and you're going to get up, and and what you're going to do is then have a walk of shame, a walk of humiliation. Self-exaltation leads to humiliation all the time, every time. And Jesus' point is, there's a better option. Because this is what he notices those at this dinner party doing. They're taking the seats of honor, and they don't deserve it. He's saying, actually, a better option would be to go and sit in the back. Give the bridal party their space, so to speak. It would be better for you to do that and then to be invited to sit in a place of honor. Because if that's you, then that is a walk of honor, not a walk of humiliation. So as Peter would later say, almost picking up on this, so you better humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, He may exalt you. See, there's nothing wrong with exaltation. There's nothing wrong with being honored and sitting in a seat of honor. What's wrong, what's wicked, is self-exaltation. So what Jesus would be saying at that dinner party, what Peter is saying, and in essence what Paul is saying in Romans 12, 3, let God exalt you, not yourself. Now Paul has already set the stage for this verse 3. We looked at this two weeks ago, in which he urged us to wholly and completely live our entire lives for Christ. To give ourselves to Christ. Well, what does that look like? Well, that means you can't look like the culture. You can no longer be conformed to the world. You you have to think differently. You have to see differently. You have to act and react differently. You must now look like Christ. You must now live like Christ. And he says you, you need to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That word metamorphosis we looked at two weeks ago. You need to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And that renewal in your mind starts with, as he says here in verse 3, starts with how you think about yourself. That's fascinating to me. He talks about transformation, discerning the will of God for ourselves. And he says, listen, in essence, that renewal of the mind starts with how you think about yourself, how you view yourself. You want to live as a living sacrifice to God? You want to live like Christ? You want to be transformed by the renewal of your mind? You want to know and to be able to discern what God's will is for you? Then you better not think too highly of yourself. See, Romans 12 deals with a lot of the external, as we'll see here in the next couple weeks. How we ought to live in community. How we ought to use our spiritual gifts to serve one another. How we're to live authentic love. How we're to be united. These kinds of things. We're to live Christ, live light. But for Paul... And seemingly the New Testament, coming from the teachings of Jesus, 
that kind of external life lived out in community as God would have us live it, it begins with the internal. The internal determines the external. Before you can get into gifts, before we can get into authentic, loving community, there must come renewal. There must come internal transformation, the renewal of our minds. And where does that renewal start? What's the foundation to that renewal? How we think of ourselves. Notice just in this verse 3, Paul's focus on thinking uses the same word in, in different ways three times. And where do we think? Where is it that we reason to ourselves? In the mind, internally. And he tells us two things. He tells us how we ought not to think about ourselves. And then he tells us how we ought to think about ourselves. So let's look at the first one. We must not think too highly of ourselves. In Luke chapter 9, we read about an event that is also recorded by Matthew and Mark. And they all give a little bit of different details. And Luke gives us a fascinating detail. And the the event or the context is the disciples, the twelve, were debating amongst themselves on this journey as they're walking about, debating amongst themselves who is the greatest. Who's more important? Who's more necessary? Who's got the better looks? I don't know what they were debating, but they were debating who is the greatest. And these had to be intense debates. You had Simon the Zealot. He was zealous for God and zealous against Rome. And then you had Matthew the tax collector who worked for Rome. You had guys like Peter, James, and John. You know these debates were intense. And they're debating who is the greatest. And then Luke tells us an interesting detail when Jesus confronts them about this. Luke says that Jesus knew the reasoning of their hearts. Jesus knew what was going on internally within them. Internally, they were self-exalting themselves. He knew the reasoning of their hearts. It literally means... The result of one's thorough reasoning. So internally they were reasoning self-exaltation. I'm the best. I'm most important. I'm most needed. And this internal reasoning led to an external debate. And it's not the only time it happens. Later on you see James and John and of course If you put the different accounts side by side, it's clear that James and John are coming to Jesus, but they're using their mother to come to Jesus and to make a demand upon Jesus. And Jesus is like, all right, what do you want? And the demand is, make sure, when we're in glory, and this is all said and done, make sure my boys, James and John, or yeah, James and John would say, make sure we are sitting one to your right and one to your left. We want the seats of honor. What were they doing internally? Exalting themselves. Self-exaltation. What's interesting about Mark's account of this in Mark chapter 10, Mark said that the other disciples then became indignant towards James and John. It's, It's a word that means they became angry towards what they judged to be wrong. 
So the debate continues. And the other disciples internally are debating amongst themselves and judging James and John to say, you're not greater than us. We're more important. We're more necessary. So they became indignant. Jesus knowing this in all these situations, this is his reply collectively. Don't lord it over each other. I don't care your position. I don't care your gift. I don't care your testimony and circumstances. You better not lord it over one another because that's what the world does. You'd better become last. I'm the greatest among you and I came to serve. So you better serve because you're not greater than me. You better become like children. You better lay down your lives for each other. In other words, you better not think too highly of yourselves. This is where Paul is getting this. If you're to live for me, if you're to live like me, if you're to be transformed, then this is not how you ought to think. This, in essence, is what Jesus is saying. This, in essence, is what Paul is saying. You better not self-exalt yourself over others. Think of it like Cinderella. We know the story of Cinderella, right? The, The glass slipper and everything. What happens? Cinderella's dad dies. And the wicked stepmother then uses her newfound position as sole guardian over Cinderella, uses her platform to exalt herself over Cinderella. But it backfires, right? And the one who is initially humble, Cinderella, becomes exalted in the end. While the one who initially exalts herself becomes humbled in the end. And within this classic story, you and I, we recognize how off-putting self-exaltation is. It's why we can't stand the one, the wicked stepmother, and we love the other, Cinderella. Why? Because one is exalted out of humility, the other is exalted out of self. And so we love the fact that the one exalted out of humility becomes the princess, while the other one, who is exalted out of self, becomes humiliated. And that's in essence what Paul is saying here. Don't think too highly of yourselves. It's off-putting. It's damaging. It leads to an external mess of things, especially in the church. It always leads to humiliation. So instead of thinking too highly of yourselves, he said, this is how you ought to think. He says you ought to think with sober judgment, sensible reasoning. But I love that translation, sober judgment, because the contrast is with somebody who is out of their mind. You ought to view yourself in the right mind. So you think about if you've ever been driving or something and you come across a car who you believe the driver to be under the influence of something, right? This maybe has happened to you before. I know it's happened to us. And immediately when this happens or I see this, one of the things I tell myself or whoever is with me in the car, I say, man, that person is out of their mind. They're out of control. When we say that, when we say, man, that person is out of control, we say they're out of their mind. Well, what do we mean by that? What we mean by that is they are not thinking clearly. They're not thinking rightly. 
They're not thinking truthfully. So Paul is saying, don't think too highly of yourself. Instead, think with sober judgment. Be sober in your thoughts. Be of the right mind. Which leads to the revelation of, who am I? Who am I to even talk about God? Who am I to even preach? Who am I to even be one to breathe right now? There's only one Lord, there's only one King, there's only one Christ, and you and I are not Him. We're not the creator and sustainer of the cosmos. We're not the one who upholds the universe by the word of His power. We're not the one who dwells in unapproachable light. We're not the one in whom all things hold together. We're not Him. Not only that, but we are nothing without Him. We're utterly and completely and wholly dependent upon Him for everything. We are nobodies without Christ. As we even saw this last week in the whole Bible study, walking through Ephesians with Dr. Bobby Kelly, it was another reminder that, man, outside of Christ, without Christ, we are dead. Lost, completely hopeless in darkness. It's all about Jesus, not us. This is why there's a fascinating story with John the Baptist. I was able to find a picture of him. Just joking, this. Yeah. But there's a scene in John 3 where John the Baptist, his followers, come to him and they say, listen, listen, that guy, they can't even use his name, by the way, that guy who you baptized, everybody is going to him. They're upset about this because they're jealous. They want the seat of honor. Not that guy that John the Baptist baptized. And what's interesting is I, I think John the Baptist was tempted to kind of follow along their way of thinking. Because his response, he turns it to first person and talks about himself. And he takes the mindset of what Paul is after in Romans 12.3. To not think too highly of yourself, but instead think with sober judgment about yourself. And John the Baptist then gives this wedding analogy, again with a wedding analogy. He says, listen, I'm just happy to stand next to the groom. If anybody had justification to exalt themselves over others, it was John the Baptist. As Jesus said, listen, nobody born of a woman is greater than John the Baptist. He is the Elijah that was to come. He is the one who prepared the way for God himself. He said, listen, I'm just happy to stand next to the groom because I must decrease. He must increase. That is sober judgment. That is how you ought to think. Who are we but blessed just to stand next to him? I must decrease. He must increase. It's all of Jesus. So instead of thinking too highly of yourselves, think with sober judgment. Another way I think Paul might say this is get your mind on Christ, not yourself. And keep your mind on Christ, not yourself. Have the mind of Christ and all else will just work itself out. 
An example of this is Philippians chapter 2, where he said, listen, you need to do absolutely nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but instead in humility, count others, other believers, more significant than yourself. Let each one of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of other people. He says, listen, you need to have this mind. Again, it begins internally. Before you can get to the external, it begins internally. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And here's our great example. He, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he never used the God card to self-exalt himself. Instead, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So as Paul would say to the Ephesians, so you better submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Get your mind on Christ. Keep your mind on Christ. Have the mind of Christ who did not think too highly of himself even though he was God in human form. Instead, he thought with sober judgment and was obedient and humble to the Father even unto death, death on a cross. In other words, think like John the Baptist. You need to decrease. He needs to increase. Our church needs to decrease. He needs to increase. And make no mistake about it, the SBC needs to decrease. He needs to increase. Get your mind on Christ. Keep your mind on Christ. Have the mind of Christ. And if you would do that, you'll begin to be transformed internally. Renewed. Which will lead to external transformation in everything, especially in the community of the church. This past week, I was taking Noah and Caroline to school, and we were running late, let's just say that, and I pull up to the drop-off car line, they go to Prairie View Elementary, and I pull up to the drop-off car line, and we're, we're late, they need to get inside, it's a couple minutes to the bell and everything, and this line is long. We weren't the only ones running late this morning, and so I decide, okay, I'm not going to wait in line, I'm actually going to park and then I'm going to walk you all across the, the parking lot, and then you can go to the sidewalk and walk in. And so I park, and it rained, I think, the night before or something. And so I park, and we get out, and the ground's wet and everything, but it wasn't raining at the time. And there was this opening where the cars were, and I told Noah and Kelly, okay, now's your time. Go. Run across. Go. And Noah just sprints across. He gets on the sidewalk, and he keeps going. But Caroline, who just turned five, she begins to run, and just like I did on that day in West Texas, she slipped, and she fell in the parking lot. She gets all wet. Her jeans are all wet. You know that feeling, just wet clothes. It's a terrible feeling. She gets maybe hurt. I don't know. She said she was hurt, but she begins to weep, standing there in the parking lot. Cars are coming. It's late. And I've got no extra clothes for her. So I just tell her, you've got to go. Go. She's a terrible thing. You're right, Dave. I'm a terrible dad. She's just crying. And I'm telling her to go. Just go. I have no idea what her teachers thought. I did take her dry clothes later, okay? It's fine. But I tell her to just to go. And finally, she, she turns and just 
dragging her feet, begins to walk to the sidewalk and, and head towards the school. And so I get in the car, and I'm in a position where I can just watch. And so I get in the car, and I'm just watching her. I want to make sure she just keeps going. And no kidding, I mean, she maybe only went a couple steps onto the sidewalk, and this little boy comes up. And I don't know how old he was, but he's the same size as her, I'm assuming maybe in pre-K or kindergarten. And he comes up to her, and I, I could just tell by his expressions and by just his nonverbals, he was trying to console her. Maybe a little five-year-old boy coming up to her and just, I can tell, concerned. And he proceeds to walk by her. And then they go a few steps and three or four other kids, no, no joke, three or four other kids come up to her as well and to this boy. And I can tell by their nonverbals and expressions, they're also equally concerned. And they begin to walk with her. I mean, she's now surrounded by like six kids. I'm like, what is going on right here? She's like in the middle of these six kids, and they're all literally just walking. The, the bell's about to ring. They all could have just ran and forgotten her, but they just walked with her. And then about a fourth or fifth grader comes up, and she kind of recognizes the situation, and she puts her arm around Caroline. You're probably thinking, I, you, I, you should have done this, Jonathan. But <laughs> she puts her arm around Caroline. And begins to, to walk her into the school with this, this surrounding of kids. That's what God wants from his church. That's what he wants. Quit thinking too highly of yourself. Think with sober judgment. Who are you? To even proclaim that you know Christ. Christ. Think like John the Baptist. I must decrease, he must increase. Put others first. Walk next to each other. Putting one another before yourself. Because that's how Jesus came. So get your mind on Christ. Keep your mind on Christ. Have the mind of Christ. Because if we don't, and we continue to self-exalt ourselves, it's only going to lead to humiliation. With that image in your mind, heads bowed, eyes closed, I'm going to invite our team forward. This time of response and invitation is an opportunity just to worship the Lord, give Him all praise for everything He's done for us and given us. But some of us in this room have actually never come to Christ, even though He's calling you to come to Him. And the reason is, is pride. As many people have pointed out, pride will keep you from the cross. But I'm telling you, if you want new life, you want forgiveness, you want a new start, you want to be born again, come to Jesus. He's calling you. Don't let pride keep you in the dark, keep you in death. Come to Christ. For others of us, we need to follow through. We, we've surrendered our lives to Christ. We're following Christ, but we never actually follow through in the obedience of baptism. Baptism is the, the public declaration that you have died to self and you've been raised in a newness to walk with Christ forevermore, that you belong to him. He's your Lord. And maybe you need to do that. Some of you others are just thinking about, man, I, I want to join the fellowship of this community of believers. I, wanna, I just want to serve. I want to get more involved. Maybe you need to come forward and talk about that. Maybe others of you, you just need to pray. You've been exalting yourself over others, spouse, family member, coworker, employee, parent, sibling, another believer. And maybe you just need to come and confess and repent and say, Lord, I've been thinking too highly of myself.
Give me sober judgment, sensible reasoning. Give me the attitude of John the Baptist. Give me the mind of Christ. So as you stand with me right now, I'm going to pray for us. And then after that, we'll have this time of response. Father, we come to you right now. We thank you for this time to gather. Stir our hearts and minds to be obedient in response to you. We get us hearts and minds to worship you, to follow you in all things. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. As we sing, you come.